scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading from Matthew. I'll start with Matthew 26, uh, verses 17 through 29. And then I will go to Matthew 27, verses 27 through 54. So I'll start with Matthew 26, 17 through 29. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And this, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who, was, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after, the blessing, it, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All right, now we'll go to Matthew 27, 27 to 54. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they went, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with, this, with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 
Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lemna, Sabacanthia. That is, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his, his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his re resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Thank you, Brother Logan, for reading those scripture passages. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. And we'll continue our study uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians here with this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. The Christian practice of communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, <clears throat> is widely held to be an important part of the life of the church. What remains less clear, probably, are the more detailed nuances of its practice. Who should participate? Who should decide this eligibility? What actually is the purpose or benefit of participating in the Lord's Supper? And how often should this supper be served? Another matter in this discussion is the process by which we prepare to participate. And <clears throat> We have in our own congregation and in our larger assembly of congregations or fellowship of congregations, a tradition that does establish some intentional preparation typically before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, a, a well-known, uh, widely read theologian had this to say about Anabaptists. He said, the Anabaptists virtually deny that God avails himself of means in the distribution of his grace. They stress the fact that God is absolutely free in communicating his grace and therefore can hardly be conceived of as bound to such external means. Such means, after all, belong to the natural world and have nothing in common with the spiritual world. God or Christ or the Holy Spirit or the inner light works directly in the heart and both the word and the sacraments can only serve to indicate or to symbolize this internal grace. The whole conception is determined by a dualistic view of nature and grace. Uh, if that is true, then I diverge here today. 
Another theologian states that in Anabaptism, with its strong emphasis on personal decision and moral perfection, baptism and the Lord's Supper became chiefly a means of discipline. They became less a means of grace than instruments of law. If that assessment is true, then here today I diverge. This sermon today, taken from this passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, will address some of the concerns about the Lord's Supper. And we will spend a significant amount of time toward the end of the sermon on application, and particular application uh, for us here at Calvary. And I put this out as a warning. It may be a test for some of you on the sanctity of tradition. But I invite it not to completely unsettle you, but invite you to engage in conversation. And as I suggested earlier, uh, we hope to have more conversation about this message and particularly how, going forward, we will practice the Lord's Supper at our business meeting and want you to bring your questions to that business meeting. I told uh, my co-pastors one of the worst-case scenarios in this conversation is if the questions that arise in this conversation were to become submerged rather than being placed out on the table to look at them honestly, to assess them biblically and expositionally. So we hope that you will have questions after today's message. We hope that those questions can have a candid forum in which we can discuss them and interact with them and hopefully come to a good, healthy uh, decisions in answer to those questions. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, begin reading in verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, your son, the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth among us, taught us how this meal, the Lord's Supper, was to proclaim the message of Jesus' ministry here on earth. You've given it to us as a gift. You've given it to us as a means by which we remember and participate in the life-giving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we study this passage, and then as we reflect on how we should respond to this rich gift of the supper, guide us in wisdom, lead us into thoughtful, honest, and conversations that build up and grow the church for the glory of your Son. Be present among us and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is basically broken into three sections. In the first section, he addresses the abuses and problems of the church at Corinth around the Lord's Supper. And he just comes right out up front and he says, while I have given you some commendation previously, and I have blessed you and I have affirmed you on some things, when it comes to the way you're doing the Lord's Supper, I have no commendation at all. You've created serious problems around the Lord's Supper. And while the overall tone of the book of 1 Corinthians is a corrective tone, it really comes to a heightened intensity here in this passage, in which he forthrightly says, you are destroying each other in a ceremony, in a rite of the church that was intended to build each other up. You're taking what it was intended for good, for grace, for building, and you're using it to destroy the church. I will not commend you in that. And so he was very forthright. This supper, he says, was intended to make you better, to build you up in the image of Christ. Rather, it is making you worse. Destruction is taking place. And we don't know exactly what was going on, but there's a fairly clear snapshot here of people coming together and the Lord's Supper becoming a bit of a buffet, but it's, I bring my own food, and I get my group of people together, and we're going to have a great big party of the most extravagant foods, and we're going to eat to the point of gluttony and drink to the point of drunkenness. We're celebrating the goodness of Jesus Christ, and as we know from previous passages, the freedom that we have in Jesus. Paul says you're misunderstanding something, because when you come 
and you have this big potluck dinner, and you hoard all the food for yourself that you bring and your close friends, you're creating factions in the assembly. And when you're doing that, if you were to look around at the assembled local body of Jesus Christ, there are people over there who have nothing. They have nothing to bring. They're coming hungry. And you're shutting them out. And those are people for whom Jesus died. They're your brothers. And he's basically saying, ought not to be that way. He hears of these factions, and he says, um, I think there's probably some truth to it. He doesn't just call it into question. It seems consistent with some of the other problems that are taking place at the church in Corinth. So this corrective tone is very strong. And then he says, while you think it's the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper because it's not the way Jesus prescribed this supper. And it seems to be another one of those places in which the social gap is exposed between the people who have and have an abundance and the poor, just as we see, saw in a few other passages previously. And Jesus said, he, first of all, he demonstrated in his ministry that to him there was no difference between those who had and those who had not. When they gathered together in his fellowship as his disciples, the rich and the poor are on the same level. One does not have precedent or priority. One should not have greater influence than the other. Each has their own calling. Each has their own point of struggle and burden and suffering. But when they come together in the Lord's house, they are the same. Jesus came to break down those social walls of division that resulted due to many uh, social situations, wealth and poverty included. And he concludes this passage, he says it in the opening section, he also concludes it by saying, if you really want to have a party, you have a house. Have that party in the house. You don't need to do it in the Lord's house. When you gather together with God's people to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's not what this is about. Now he goes on to make another interesting observation. He says that factions or divisions, as they're being demonstrated here in the Corinthian church, become a test whereby truth is tested and genuine believers are disclosed or separated from those who are not genuine believers. Now, I assume most of you are probably like me in this, that most of us really don't care for conflict. Most of us prefer peaceful relationships. So some of us go to great lengths to avoid conflict. And Paul says in this passage, and he also says this to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, he says that when there is strife or conflict in the church, one of the reasons it exists is because there is heresy or there is error or there are ungodly people in the assembly. And through conflict, several things happen. One of them is that those who are not genuine, those who are not of us, suddenly come to light. They're exposed. 
and he tells Timothy, it also then becomes a test for leadership. If leadership is able to discern through that conflict and be able to sort it out, that leadership is validated, the church is strengthened, the church is purified, heresy and error and wrong are exposed and called the truth. Now just think practically about that. Uh, whenever you run into a great difficulty in life, whenever you have uh, maybe even a business challenge or a family challenge, isn't it because something, in fact, is not exactly the way it ought to be? Somewhere, in some way, in some relationship, and in some context. And so to, to hang on to a peaceful context uh, is really a cop-out. Now, it doesn't mean we need to go earth everything up, dig everything up that we believe might be possibly wrong, but God has a way in his time of, of bringing those things to light. And when he does, there is, a, there is a component of conflict and struggle that comes to the surface. We should not be afraid of that in whatever environment it surfaces, but rather trust that Christ is the one who has come to reconcile all things to himself, and that this kind of conflict emerging provides an opportunity for Jesus to sort something out, for Jesus to put something to rights that's been wrong. And so when we find ourselves in the pain of conflict, it's easy to run and hide. What we need to do is run into the embrace of Jesus and say, Jesus, something's wrong. Would you help us find resolution? So that he can put things to rights, and in putting things to rights, be glorified. Now it takes faith, it takes courage to move that direction in conflict rather than into the caves. Okay, and sometimes we run a long way toward the caves till we realize that's an exercise in futility and we might as well come back out and face the battle. So that was just wasted, ex wasted energy. Okay, so let's stay. Let's stay engaged. Let's just learn to fight well. That's what's happening here in the Corinthian church. And we have reason to believe, based on 2 Corinthians, that many of the conflicts Paul addressed were resolved in helpful, healthy kinds of ways. And the church was actually strengthened in this process. So this conflict was not a waste, not an exercise in futility, but rather a means of growing and maturing the church of Jesus Christ at Corinth. Now the second part of this passage is the Lord's Supper summarized? So we have the conflict, we have the difficulty, we have the factions, the division. But now Paul comes back to, in very simple and direct language, just explaining what the Lord's Supper is. And he said, what I told you when I was there, in the birth of this church, what I, when I told you and taught you about the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what I was given. So what I received by revelation by God, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, giving him a description of the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what I delivered to you. Okay, and that's the task of an apostle. It's also the task of a pastor. To receive what God has given and to give it in that way. Not to distort it, not to subvert it, but to give it as it has been received and to communicate it clearly. And Paul says... To the church at Corinth, that's what I've done. I received this description of the Lord's Supper, and I have delivered it to you. I have safely carried it from the time I received it until I brought it to you and taught you 
about the Lord's Supper. And he's also essentially saying that since then it has not changed. I have no new revelation. I have no different plan from God. What he gave to me is what I gave to you. That is still the way it ought to be. And he describes a very, very simple meal. Bread and wine. The fruit of the earth, crushed, ground, baked. The fruit of the vine, crushed, bottled, served. In eating, drinking, and remembering. Remembering the work of Jesus Christ, he says you are preaching the good news of the gospel. So when you take the bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. And you are to do that till he comes again. And at that time, Jesus will have his second supper because he told his disciples, I will not eat it again until I eat it with you anew in the kingdom of God. And, and this itself is a fascinating study. We have a form of the supper introduced at the time of the Exodus in the Passover. We have Jesus making it a new covenant supper and reminding us that there is another supper coming, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I, I kind of like that because I have a gives me reason for liking food and sitting down and dining. Jesus said there's something powerful about this that I'm using to teach you about God's work in the world. Now, he also warns them that it's possible to eat and drink this supper in an unworthy manner. And the unworthy manner that he is specifically addressing here, while it may not be exclusive, it is poignantly this, factions, feuding, and selfish disregard for brothers and sisters for whom Christ died that are a part of my assembly. That's the unworthy manner that he is specifically addressing here. He is not describing some kind of moral perfection. He is not describing someone who is now sinless and perfect before a holy God suddenly being worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. No, it is unworthy people in that way who acknowledge their dependency on Jesus for salvation, and that apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death, no one is going to be part of the new heavens and new earth. So we are unworthy and will always be unworthy in that regard. But our confidence in that unworthiness is in the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so we come to the Lord's table in great confidence, with great longing and desire, for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be made continually effective in our hearts and in our lives. The unworthiness is the way in which it is partaken that he is particularly pointing out here. You come with a factious spirit. You come with disregard and even despising your brother and sister. And we're not going to be able to spend much time here. But that specific line, uh, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to what that body refers to. I think, given the context, it has to be, almost has to be, the assembled body of Christ. It's not talking about Jesus' incarnate body. It may not preclude that, but the unworthy manner and eating and drinking unworthily 
Discerning the body means paying attention to the body of, body of Christ as it's present in the local church. So eating and drinking without discerning the body means no regard for my brothers and sisters. Rather, developing, holding one's own party, eating and drinking in that way, he says, brings judgment on himself. We must learn in our preparation to take the Lord's Supper to discern our relationship to others in the body carefully, wisely, exercising good discernment. Now, that's not the main thing, but it is a significant thing. The main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it has implications for the way we live in the world. And we cannot come together as a body unless the gospel is made effective in all of our lives. And Jesus Christ is the center of our faith, and the proclamation of the gospel is the central message of the community of faith. And he tells them, you must learn to discern the body in these ways. Otherwise, you will subject yourself to the judgment of God and the discipline of God because God does not want you to live in that kind of fractious, alienating kinds of relationships. He wants you to come together in Jesus. And if you continue to persist in that kind of factionalism and you take of the Lord's Supper in that way and in that spirit, you belong to him, he will discipline you. He disciplines sons. He disciplines those who belong to him. And the reason he disciplines is so that you will not ultimately be condemned with the world at the final judgment. So that discipline is preventive. He steps in and says, stop this, stop this. Don't damage my body this way. And Paul goes so far as to say, that's why there's so much sickness and disease and illness at Corinth. And in fact, some people have died because of God's discipline. And this discipline is preventive. God is trying to stop the destruction of his body so that the glory of the gospel can be demonstrated in the local assembly of believers. And so he wants to stop that fragmentation and he's willing to discipline. This suggests even to the point of taking someone's life in order to cease and dis or cause them to cease and desist from this uh, fractious behavior. Now, I think most of us probably don't often think of God's discipline in those kinds of ways. I encourage you to read this. If you disagree with the, the exegesis of it, I'd be interested in hearing. But it seems to me it says that quite clearly. So the practical conclusions, then, that Paul gives are wait for each other. And these are in the concluding verses of the passage. So don't eat the Lord's Supper in this kind of fractious way, but rather wait for each other. And instead of the rich coming with all their food and eating and the poor being left with nothing, I want you all to come together, wait for each other, and together you share the Lord's table. You share the Lord's Supper. Because in fact, we are the body of Christ. And together, we partake of Christ. No one was to be left out. Christ is honored in those ways. If they were hungry and they had the wealth to put on a large party, do it at home, he said. The Lord's house is not the place
for those kinds of factions and partial celebrations. The church was to gather in mutual respect and harmony to share the Lord's Supper, and Christ would be honored in those ways. Now, practical application. What do we do with this? What do we do with the simple teaching of Jesus, the Lord's Supper that he has instituted, that he's given to us? At the end of the day, churches have to make practical decisions about how we do this. Churches need to actually serve the Lord's Supper. Can't just avoid it. Now, there are churches and streams of, of traditions that have avoided it, just like those we referenced when we talked about baptism, who have said the main thing is being united with Christ in his death and resurrection by faith and knowing that spiritual renewal. And the water is nothing, so why bother? We won't baptize. Those same people eventually come to the place, they say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. Well, the main thing is spiritually partaking of Christ. And so knowing his grace and power and knowing his life, the bread and wine are nothing. They're material. They don't really matter. So we won't serve the Lord's Supper. And incidentally, tucked between those in the previous passage is the headship veiling. The same kind of interpretation tends to take place. The real thing is submission, is order, is God's order. The material, the cap, the covering, that's really nothing. Well, I think it's a similar type of situation. God cares about stuff. Material matters to him. Jesus actually took on a body. He didn't come as an angel. He didn't come purely as a spirit. And so I think the charge that both of these theologians make against Anabaptism has many times been legitimate, that we have tended to fragment the spiritual and the material. We have tended to despise the material while exalting the spiritual. When in fact, Jesus came and brought both worlds fully together, body, soul, spiritual, material. And Jesus to this day has a body. He is not an immaterial creature. He has a body. Now it's a glorified body and in that come many of the finely nuanced debates about what it means for Jesus to be present in the Lord's Supper. Okay, we're not going to have time to talk about that. I don't think it's just because I'm a coward. Okay, uh, there are many things I don't understand about how Jesus is present at the Lord's table. I believe he's present. And I have ways of trying to make sense out of that in my own mind, which I will reserve for other conversations. But practically, we believe the Lord's Supper must be served. And so we must ask the hard questions. Who serves it? Who receives it? When is it served? How is it served? How frequently is it served? You can't get by without answering those questions. And guess what? There is no section of the Bible that becomes a simple step-by-step -step manual to prescribe exactly how that's done. So we have a difficulty. We have a certain lack of clarity about how it's done. But I think if we also read this sincerely and with open hearts, there are certain things that do become clear. The first, this supper is to be an actual eating of bread and drinking of the cup. We're to actually 
do that. It does represent a spiritual reality, but it is also to be done physically. There are many disagreements throughout the Christian world as to what the supper actually is. All Christians agree it is a memorial. It is to be done remembering. Most agree that there is a spiritual partaking that takes place when we take the Lord's Supper in faith. Some believe that there is a miraculous occurrence that takes place in which the bread becomes the body of Christ and the cup, the wine, becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. And there are many shades and varieties of this position, particularly in how that occurs. I want to emphasize here today just the simple language that's present in all four Gospels and that's present here in Corinthians. Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Drink. Do this in remembrance of me. That's very simple language. Very clear. What does it mean? Theologians debate it and discuss it and write tome after tome after tome. And much of this is contingent on their perspective of the nature of the universe, the physical and the non-physical, and how they relate to each other. And there are a lot of ways in which this can be nuanced. I think it is important to note that in the Anabaptist world, there has never been a serious work done on the Lord's Supper that was not done in the midst of great conflict. So the early work that was done on the Lord's Supper, and there's some extensive work, three primary authors who have written fairly extensively about the Lord's Supper, each of those three sh gave shape to their understanding of the Lord's Supper in the midst of charges of being heretics. So they, they created their theology in defending their position against one they were leaving. Uh, one contemporary theologian takes note that when you read Anabaptist theologians throughout history, including some of the more recent works, you will find that none of them provide a defense for the traditional practice in the, in the Anabaptist world of how we practice the Lord's Supper. Nobody provides a defense of it. So it's an, we've kind of gotten ourselves, I think, into an interesting dilemma. Uh, we practice it in a certain way. We continue practicing it, and we get nervous about tampering with it, but we can't really completely defend it uh, systematically, expositionally. And this is, uh, part of it is just simply we have not really defined. We agree on the memorial, that this is a memorial supper. Beyond that, we have not developed much theological clarity. And I'm not sure that's all bad, okay? I, it's not all bad. There is this component of preparation, and there are multiple methods that churches have taken for preparation. And I think there's something good and right about having a special time of preparation, a sharing time, an examining time. But I would also say that I believe it has tended to limit the frequency of our partaking of the Lord's Supper, and it has nurtured an attitude of fear about the Lord's Supper 
that I believe Jesus did not intend. Now, I want to step back at that and say, I think Calvary, over its history, has worked hard against that. And I think we've made significant progress so that most, most of us, I hope and I believe, primary emotion coming to communion is not about discipline, correction, and fear, but rather it's the joyful memory of the Lord's sacrifice for us and the opportunity we have of partaking of that. I want you to know that's not true everywhere. How do we decide uh, the participation expectations? And again, churches come out here many different places as well. Some leave the examination entirely to the individual. So that any time the Lord's Supper is served, if you are present, it is only up to you as to whether or not you partake of the Lord's Supper. So you can go to some churches. When the Lord's Supper is served, there is no qualification given. Or there may be a qualification given, and the qualification is, if you examine yourself before the Lord, you may partake. And then there are other denominations and congregations who say you must be a specific member of their denomination. Uh, the Catholic Church, for instance, you must be a Catholic in order to partake of their uh, mass. And there, the church comes out in many different places on this issue. And incidentally, there's a segment of the Anabaptist world that has gone the pathway of leaving it completely to the individual. The church has almost no say, almost no parameter established at all. And a friend of mine uh, who is an Anglican, in his assessment of the Mennonite church at large, told me, I think one of the biggest mistakes the Mennonite church has made, and what has contributed to their great weakness, and his assessment is one of weakness, the larger Mennonite church, is their unwillingness to exclude anyone from the Lord's table. And I want you to just, just consider that. If the church comes to the place, the local church, Calvary Mennonite Fellowship Mount Clinton, comes to the place where they can exclude no one. What have you got? You have a group of individuals who are bound only to the Lord as they see it with no respect for each other, no deference to each other, no discerning of each other. Okay, and I think that that becomes problematic. On the other side, we have churches who have taken the authority and the final authority and the complete authority to decide who eats. And they work very hard before every Lord's Supper to clearly determine as best they can whether each individual is worthy to partake this time. Okay. And without spending too much time there, I think that also has problems. And so there is, as many people describe it, there's an open communion that's without parameter. There is a closed communion where the church controls it absolutely and completely. That's even inside membership, 
given immediate situations, the control is very strong. Calvary has historically held to what we call a close communion. Close simply means members are expected to participate unless they are under specific discipline of the congregation. Those who are close to us attend here regularly, are one with us in doctrine, in faith, are welcome to participate, provided they make it known that they would like to. And so it is seen as a family, a committed family event. And just as you would not head down the street, walk into somebody's house, and expect to be invited to sit down at their dinner table, unless you were invited, or unless you said, you know, uh, please, neighbors, I'm rather hungry. Uh, could I join you for dinner? That looks so good. You expect some sort of courtesy like that. That's the kind of attitude that we want to nurture and have, I think, held to here congregationally. It's close. It's intended to be for family and those in close proximity. And so we have maybe even uh, someone from our alliance of churches from another state and they come in, they're not close to us necessarily, we don't even know them. They just happen in. Uh, we might be reticent to just say, hey, you want to join us? Now, if they say we would really like to, we might say, okay, we'll consider that. But we're talking about closeness in the form of relational, faith, life-on-life, -life, family proximity. That's the way closeness uh, has been basically understood. Now, I think there are some exegetical and some biblical weaknesses with that position. There are some strengths. Uh, and I am not going to be really, really dogmatic on it, but it does two things. One of them, it puts some responsibility on the individual in that if you are a member and you know that you're in a situation that really makes you an unworthy participant, uh, you should decline. You should sit back. And you have the freedom to do that. Two, it gives real authority to the church to protect the Lord's table. And I think we find that in other parts of Corinthians and in other epistles, the church must have real authority to protect from the Lord's table. Not all are welcome. Somehow that has to be tested. And we can't have it merely be the individual on his personal whim. There needs to be some kind of process. So the church establishes a general circle that general circle is led and implemented by the pastors as a delegated authorities and leadership of the local church. This guards the Lord's table within the context of mutual accountability. But within that circle, uh, we also need to be sensitive to where we are before the Lord ourselves. As to frequency and what happens at the Lord's table, God in his grace invites us to dine with Christ regularly. Remembering the sacrifice of Christ and partaking richly of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And again, I would like to bring back with care the word sacrament. I am not into sacramentalism. I do not believe the church can administer the ordinances, can administer the Lord's Supper, and whoever takes it receives grace. I do believe it is a means by which God graces his people when people come in faith and love to the Lord's table. 
in that limited sense, I like the word sacrament. But I am not sacramental. I think that was an appropriate reaction of the early Anabaptist movement. Neither am I sacramentarian in that I believe God only ministers spiritually and not through physical material means, his grace to humanity. I think those are two extremes. I think there is a healthy understanding that God does grace his people through their obedient actions according to the, the means that he gives us. And I think baptism is one of those. I think the Lord's Supper is one of those. I think there'll be many other ways in which people in faith obey God. Jesus Christ graces us in that obedience. How often do we partake? And I'm here to put, actually make a suggestion to you. And this change could be a test of our tradition. So I think we need to be willing to submit our tradition to an assessment of the Word of God. And let our first loyalty be to Christ and His Word, secondarily to the traditions of the church. A John D. Rempel, in his work, The Lord's Supper in Anabaptism, states that the limited frequency of sharing in the Lord's Supper in early Anabaptism, and in many circles to this day, existed in part because, one, they were unable to overcome the medieval dread of unworthy reception. And two, he believes it was due in part to the difficulty of assembling. They were a church on the run in, for many, many years. In addition, I believe the infrequency has also been linked to the tendency toward this event being so closely tied to the discipline of the church. And it has become, for many, a time of dread and fear. And that's a tragedy. And again, I quote Horton, who says, Anabaptism, with its strong emphasis on personal decision and moral perfection, baptism and the Lord's Supper became chiefly a means of discipline. They became less a means of grace than instruments of law. And I believe here we have made good progress congregationally. Our sharing time and preparation has been focused more closely on the gospel, on confession of our need, on honesty about who we are before the Lord. And that honesty and need has not disqualified anyone here from the Lord's table. It has been a time to confess our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ as adequate to save us from our sin, from our brokenness. The good news of Jesus, we have recognized, is the central message of the church, and the Lord's Supper proclaims that message. So how often do we do this? Tradition for us and many other churches has been to do so twice a year. And I'm here to tell you I believe that is inadequate. Uh, that should not be a new idea to most of you. Uh, multiple of us pastors over the last years have made that kind of statement across this pulpit. You need to know we've discussed this hours and hours on end uh, together as a team. We have discussed it with the church council off and on for the past number of years. Again, Scripture does not specifically specify how often we share the Lord's Supper. The language, however, implies much greater frequency than twice a year. It implies that it happens frequently, and the language tends to be things like when you gather. 
in much of our tradition, our practice of the Lord's Supper has been established through the reading of the Gospel of John. And that is why in our tradition we have always practiced the Lord's Supper with feet washing. The only place you find that is the Gospel of John. And historians have noted that even early Anabaptists, in their writings, tended to prefer the teaching of John as the foundation for the Lord's Supper, as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the illustrations, historic illustrations of Acts, and the Pauline epistles. They've gone back and argued primarily from a Johannine position. And I think one of the things that has done for us, it has anchored the fact that humble service to each other is a significant component of Christian faith and practice. And we have demonstrated that through the washing of the saints' feet and the Lord's Supper. So I'm here not to diminish in any way the value of the washing of the saints' feet in the Lord's Supper. I am here to call you to consider whether or not they may actually be two separate things. The Lord's Supper is spoken of frequently apart from the washing of the saints' feet. Feet washing occurred at the time of Passover, at the celebration of the first Lord's Supper, and we need to pay it some special consideration. Our proposal is that we consider moving the frequency of the Lord's Supper to once a month. And that's six times our current practice. Okay, and if you will permit me, uh, I think this is a peaceful congregation. My preference is weekly. So this isn't just Steve's preference. This is a move that is done strategically, thoughtfully, collectively as a group of pastors, and the church council brings this as a recommendation that we consider moving to once a month. We want this to be a topic of discussion. Wednesday night, August the 14th. And I remind you, we don't want the conversations and questions to go underground. We want them on the table. So you have questions? They are not off limits. Uh, I'm sure there are questions we have not thought of. It's just hard for me to imagine. (laughs) Okay, really hard for me to imagine. Uh, But I'm sure they exist. And we would be happy to have that conversation. Several things I would like to say is that a response of preparation or a time of preparation can change in how it looks and how it functions. Uh, A Lord's Supper as a part of a Sunday morning worship service that is a part of the flow can have a time of personal reflection and preparation. There is a more strongly individual component to that. So in this increase in frequency, we're not talking about abandoning preparation. We're saying there are other ways of dealing with the preparation question, and we'd like to explore those as well. We believe that the service that we hold now that tends to be more an open time of sharing for an extended period of time, followed by the Lord's Supper and the washing of feet, we would continue to practice that at least once a year over the time of Easter and possibly twice a year as we do now. And they would be one or two out of the 12. Now this change would be coupled with some changes in our Sunday evening services as well. And we want to introduce some of those changes on Wednesday night. Okay, we'll actually hopefully get a document out to you possibly by next Sunday with some of those proposed changes that you can have a chance to read over uh, before we come to the business meeting. 
Now, I'd like to address what I believe is probably one of the most common objections to increased frequency, and that is this. If you take something as special as the Lord's table, around which you spend a lot of emotional energy twice a year, and you do it that often, don't you diminish its value. And I would respond to that by asking you a few questions. One, how often should you be reminded of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, to lead a gospel-centered life? How often? How quickly do we forget? And when Jesus gave one of the means for us to remember and to participate in the Lord's Supper, how often should we? And does it, in fact, diminish its value? When the heart is turned toward Christ, the beauty and power of the Lord's Supper is not diminished by frequency. It's strengthened. I would also add, the Lord's Supper is not one of those things that should be valued because of its scarcity, like diamonds and gold. Rather, it is one of those things that should be valued because of its centrality to the Christian faith, to the Christian life, like bread and water. Which is of greater value, diamonds and gold? bread and water. Many people have exchanged diamonds and gold for bread and water. Most of all, we want to nurture here as a congregation a deep awareness of the gospel of Jesus so poignantly preached in the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup. We want to nurture a deep fellowship with Christ and a unity of the body. And we believe this is one of the ways that Jesus has specifically taught us to do that. And for those whose faith, hope, and desire is in Jesus Christ, the Lord's table is a place of grace. We do well to gather there often and hear his words, take Eat. This is my body. And drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.